Welcome to Europe Chats. Today we will talk about foreign and security policy of the European Union and how it has changed as a result of Russia's war against Ukraine. We are in November 2022 and Ukrainian armed forces have just liberated Kherson. With Ukraine's victory becoming more and more plausible, we are asking ourselves where the EU and its 27 member states stand between unity and division. How ready are they to support Ukraine in the coming months? My guest is Benjamin Tallis, research fellow at German Council on Foreign Relations. He focuses on the politics of European security, particularly concerning the European neighborhood, borders and migration. He previously worked for the EU on security missions in Ukraine and the Balkans and was policy officer at the European Center of Excellence for Civilian Crisis Management in Berlin. He also worked at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and contributed to drafting the EU's global strategy in 2016. Benjamin, how would you summarize the essence of the EU's foreign and security policy? How does it come about and what does it try to achieve? Well, thank you, Mariam, for the invitation this morning. It's a pleasure to be back in Brussels. Um, the essence of the EU's foreign and security policy. Well, uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm not sure it really has one, to be honest. Uh, at least not one that really matters in the emerging geopolitical situation uh, that we can see. At the moment, it's basically muddling through, uh, cobbling together bits and pieces from its internal security policies, trade and economic policy. Um, it has provided some money and paid for some weapons, that uh, can't be denied. But <clears throat> the only part of its policy I think that's really working was the decision to grant uh, membership candidacy to Ukraine, to retake somehow that geopolitical vision of the EU in a creative geopolitics way. Um, and it's also, this crisis has really exposed the, uh, the shortcomings of EU foreign and security policy and the lack of direction and lack of cohesion that there is uh, therein. I'm, I'm not a Brussels person, and you're here, sitting here in Brussels. There are other people here who could explain far better the institutional aspects of that. Um, I tend to look at the politics of this rather than the policy as such. And I think it's important to note in that regard that some EU member states are ahead of the pack here, uh, especially in North, Central, Eastern Europe, um, Estonia, Czechia, also Finland and others who are starting to develop a genuinely strategic approach that combines uh, materiel, a military support, with a moral, morally grounded policy that could actually be the basis of a future EU foreign and security policy that uh, could have a lot better effect. That's what I call neo-idealism, um, and it's really a, a change from the EU's own policy and large member state policy in recent years. Well, the Council of the EU recently approved a strategic compass defining external policy for a European Union that protects its citizens' values and interests and contributes to international peace and security. What does this mean in practice then? In practice, not a lot. I think the compass was a compromise that pleased no one except for perhaps some in the Brussels institutions and particularly around Josep Borrell um, and some parts of the External Action Service who've been pushing for this, what, what I think is a self-defeatingly retrograde approach to geopolitics, which the EU is very ill-equipped to deliver. What we saw was the compass painted this doom-laden vision of the world in order to ask for very small capability upgrades. Um, so it's, it's only actually serving to increase that perennial gap between the expectations of what the EU says it's supposed to be addressing and its capabilities to, to do so. I think also, I mean, the compass, what, what is a strategic compass? I'm still not 100% sure about that or why to call it a compass, especially one that points in so many directions. Um, it seems a rather confused approach that compromised between the 
the needs of different member states with different priorities. Uh, there are good parts to the Compass too, uh, cooperation with NATO and the, and the United States, it made clear. Uh, but before Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine, it wasn't really clear to many in the EU how much they really needed this and whether that was really a genuine commitment or just paying, paying lip service. I think that should be obvious to many now that we do need that cooperation. And for real defence, that's something we should be focusing on. Indeed, there is no European army and most of the EU member states depend on the transatlantic alliance for their security. What kind of <coughs> means and tools does the European Union actually have to guarantee its security? Well, NATO. That's the primary tool the EU has to guarantee its, its security in hard defence terms. Uh, seriously though, I mean, the EU and its member states don't have the hard power capabilities mm. that they would need to guarantee their own security from a full-on attack of the kind that we've seen Russia perpetrate against Ukraine. On the other hand, the question as to who would make such an attack now with Russia's capabilities so depleted and um, in, in such question, it raises a question of what defense is actually needed. Now, in a, a growing systemic competition, however, with authoritarian regimes, and the EU still represents a bastion of democratic, uh, democratic governance in its member states, at least, being ready for that competition is important. And making effective deterrence as part of defense is really important for that. How we integrate the nuclear forces of certain European states, uh, the mm. French uh, nuclear deterrent, um, but also I think we have to look at security in different ways. Um, security is not only about guaranteeing territorial defense or deterring attack, it's about providing a sense of well-being to citizens and actually providing some kind of sense that uh, they can live well within a society, mm -hmm. otherwise insecurity flows into us in different ways. Well, you, earlier you already mentioned uh, enlargement, right? How does the EU enlargement policy actually fit in the idea of European security? It is often mentioned that the biggest success of EU foreign policy was enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, you have been speaking actually in this context of the idea of progressive security and I think that's what you actually referred to, defined uh, just right now. Um, how would you explain it? Yes, I think certainly the, the EU's, uh, what was known as the Eastern Enlargement, in, uh, concluded in, in principle in 2002 through the referenda, then in 2003 and enacted in 2004, can be seen as a high point of European um, or EU geopolitical influence and geopolitical success. And at that very moment of success, the EU and its member states started to get nervous about continuing that further down that track. I've said that's a mistake. Why? because actually the creative geopolitical approach that enlargement uh, depended on, mm -hmm. um, which was about transforming older conflicts uh, by, by breaking down borders between states, really, and breaking down borders of governance, uh, so to allow for the kind of mutual involvement and progressively greater involvement, and that's also where the term progressive security yeah. comes from, um, progressively greater involvement in each other's affairs in order to pursue what are actually common interests of citizens in those countries as well as of states. And that progressive involvement with each other led to progressively greater contact between peoples, between firms, companies, um, mm. civil society, as well as political actors that served to take the danger out of difference and help to, to realize that they did have common interests. Now that's a creative form of geopolitics. Why? Because um, unlike traditional geopolitics, which would, for example, look at concepts like spheres of influence imposed by a great power on its immediate mm -hmm. surrounds, 
this was a voluntary sphere of in integration. Absolutely. And so that's how creative geopolitics and progressive security go together and provide an alternative to traditional geopolitics and hard security, let's say. Given what has happened in 2022, do you think that the EU and its member states are now more open to building a common future with Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova? Or are they still thinking in terms of protective security? It's a real mix at the moment and you can see the, the battle happening in different policy areas. You can see it in the hesitancy of some of the larger member states, uh, France and Germany were, were too for some time uh, to approve this, uh, this membership candidacy. You can see it in the hesitancy in dealing with the Balkan countries uh, who for so long have had broken promises and betrayed hope from the, the EU as well as having their own, own problems of course. Um, <coughs> and you can see it in the confusion of something like um, Josep Borrell's statement on this European garden yes. to be protected from a jungle. Now of course until very recently Borrell would have included Ukraine in that jungle rather than in the garden. <laughs> And this shows you how damaging and dangerous these kind of ways of thinking can be. And it, it goes back to, to earlier ways of thinking from Robert Cooper and people like that, the, um, the pre-modern, the modern and the post-modern world. Europe is the, the club that keeps the law among itself, but when it's acting outside, it must obey the law of the jungle. That sends a terrible, terrible signal to the outside. Um, the EU has to be realistic rather than realist, perhaps, about the challenges it faces. But actually addressing the outside world in this way smacks of the worst kinds of neo-colonial approaches and of a chauvinistic civilizationism, if you like, that excludes so many people from Europe and makes it harder for them to jointly embrace what we have as common values. But is this really what he wanted actually to achieve? I think this is how many understood. Mm. Uh, but, but on the other hand, I think he also called for more engagement to the rest of the world. So he had a more positive agenda in mind, I think. Maybe it didn't come out uh, well, but uh, was it really what he meant? It's, it's a good question. And obviously trying to, to understand the true intentions of political actors is... Uh, more of a hobby than an analytical, uh, an analytical endeavor. Um, but what it revealed was that even if you want more engagement with the world, mm -hmm. doing it on those terms and with the basis that you think of yourself as this civilized, act, civilized actor mm -hmm. and the rest of the world as something to be civilized, that really is rather a neo-colonial approach to the world. Um, I, certainly I've argued in favor of more engagement with the world, but engagement on what terms and how you do it is the key to that success. Um, it also seemed rather blind to some of Europe's own failings, um, failings for many of its population who don't see the hope of progress in their societies, who don't see themselves as being included into democratic decision-making, who don't see a future where many of their types of work are threatened by technological change. And in a society that's, or a group of societies that hasn't yet embraced what technological change can do for creating progress for more people. So I think there's two, two main problems with that on top of what are colonial overtones, potentially um, quite xenophobic ways of looking at the world and about essentialized versions of EU identity. So intended or not, it's the impact that it might have that is important there. But don't we believe that our values are actually superior? How can we exercise value-based foreign policy if borrowed statements are understood as new colonial? That's a great question and a source of some misunderstanding, I think, quite, quite often. It's all about the basis on which we think uh, these values are superior and the basis on which superiority is construed. In a neo-colonial formation, it seems as though this superiority is somehow inherent, almost natural, as a state of being to, to Europeans versus an outside that is therefore inferior. 
The neo-idealist vision is different. Um, and first, we should really also say these are not just European values. These are potentially universal values. And I don't like mm -hmm. the, yeah. the colonization, actually, of those values by the EU discourse. I think we need to get beyond that and really say that these are values that everyone can take possession of if they want to. There's nothing inherently European, actually, about them. So how can we exercise value-based foreign policy in a non-neocolonial way? Because we can argue it's superior because it will deliver better outcomes. And that's a better outcome for the, uh, the wider majority of people in societies who benefit from fundamental freedoms, human rights, and from an inclusive economy that would actually see them be able to, to imagine a better future. And when, when I say a better future, I mean it in a very simple way, that tomorrow may be better than today, that our kids might live better than we do. The hope of progress that actually drove a lot of European politics and politics elsewhere for, um, for hundreds of years, but which we've lost in recent times. It's about re-engineering that and reviving that and saying that if we strive for our values conceived as ideals to, to strive for, mm. then I think we have something better to offer. And that's exactly what we should be looking to build, an attractive pole of Europe that doesn't just assert its superiority, but shows it in a way that others can also join in. That means getting away from protective security. It means getting away from essentialized civilizational visions of European identity. It means a civic identity that others can buy into. After all, Ukrainians have been showing us how to be uh, European in the last days, if we take that uh, seriously. Well, speaking about High Representative Joseph Borrell, he recently said that the EU did not believe Russia would attack Ukraine in February, nor did they believe that Ukraine would resist as fiercely and as successfully. What does this say about European intelligence and uh, about European leaders' understanding of Russia as a state? Why um, didn't we develop a better understanding of Russia in the past 20 years and why were we not better prepared? I think this, the answer to this question relates to the answer to the previous question. It's about how you understand the world and how you go about trying to understand the world outside your own uh, borders and outside the societies you're most familiar with. In several major European countries, there was a lot of wishful thinking about Russia. And so the, um, the main reason we didn't understand what was going on in Russia is because we didn't want to. Because there were still too many believing in the, what's called the convergence wager. Yes. Uh, the end, sort of lazy liberalism of the end of history, where any engagement will bring um, convergence towards liberal norms. Even when it was manifestly clear that wasn't happening, uh, very little change in approach to Russia took place. In, in Germany, for example, being one of the, um, the key proponents of that approach. But it wasn't just Germany, it was others uh, as well. The, the lack of intelligence, in every sense actually, about Ukraine speaks to a slightly different problem. It speaks to um, a lot of Europeans' ignorance about Ukraine, uh, which has been born from the fact that it's, it's been overlooked for many years as being in Russia's shadow, as being effectively some kind of small Russia, Russia light, mm -hmm. just with slightly different mm -hmm. characteristics. Yeah. Um, of course, that's nonsense and always has been nonsense, mm -hmm. but um, how to change that perception when even some of the EU delegation staff in Ukraine um, as recently as, as 2012 were seeing their job as mainly to prevent migrants coming to the EU from Ukraine. The EU border assistance mission that I worked for as well, mainly self-serving in terms of uh, European interests, perceived European interests, which mm -hmm. I would say were miscalculated, mm -hmm. rather than actually genuinely engaging with Ukrainians. 
And so this um, hesitant embrace that the EU has had of Ukraine, which has been as much as to, to keep at arm's length rather than to actually mm. bring in, um, is part of a problem that again goes to a hierarchy of thinking about we EU Europeans are better than Ukrainians because we are better in these ways. They are threatening to us and dangerous. They may corrupt our values. Mm. We've seen precisely the opposite in the last uh, year that actually Ukrainians are showing EU Europeans how to stand up for what are not only European values but are democratic and liberal values more, more widely. Um, so I think this, this combination of a sort of lazy fatalism about uh, European civilization in decline and needing to be protected, a lazy belief in the end of history uh, convergence wager, and a lazy ignorance about uh, Ukraine, and that extends beyond Ukraine as well. So this, this rather speaks to a, a problem in Europe more widely. Well, talking about mistakes, Joseph Borrell recently warned that, and I quote, we Europeans suffer the consequences of having decoupled the sources of our prosperity from the sources of our security. Our prosperity has been based on cheap energy coming from Russia and access to the big China market. Have all EU member states by now realized this unfortunate dependency and what can they do about it? Um, I think many of them have realized the dependency whether they're willing to do something about it is a different question. And whether they are in fact repeating the same mistakes with China, uh, another authoritarian regime with whom we're perhaps in an even bigger long-term systemic competition is a matter of great question. Um, there are many who still have their heads in the sand, not least in, in Germany where I'm based. Um, despite actually what is a very lively public debate about these issues, there's been huge contestation over the decision to uh, sell part of the Hamburg port to, to Costco, a Chinese company, um, and to sell a chip manufacturer recently. Mm. But despite this, the, um, the Chancellor, the, the Scholz Chancellery, is really driving forward that same old policy. And certainly allies around Germany, particularly in Central Eastern Europe, are, are furious about this. Seen, it seems to be just repeating the same old mistakes. And this happens while we're talking about Seidenwender all the time. How is this justified? <laughs> it's it's um, a really interesting question. Obviously, the Seidenwender is a big term that's uh, used to mean many things. But in fact, the Seidenwender, there doesn't seem to have been a Seidenwender in the Kanzleramt, in the, the Chancellery. And they actually, against the advice of the other political parties in their coalition, the advice of many ministries, are pursuing this course that seems to please actually only the, a part of the Social Democratic Party, a part of the SPD, and uh, some of the big business interests in Germany. So it's, it's a strange thing when you look at how damaging policy has been in the last 20 years, the obvious recognition around German society that this mm. needs to change, and the unwillingness to do so while claiming that it is changing on behalf of some of the key leaders. That's not to say that's the situation in Germany as a whole. It isn't. Uh, but the demands for change need to be expressed more, more clearly, let's say. And we can happily talk more about the Titan vendor later. But just one thing important to say that it's not only Germany either. I mean, selling off the whole port of Piraeus to Chinese interests in Greece or selling off parts of the ports of Antwerp and Rotterdam has been a mistake as well. It might be something that we'd wish to use as leverage, perhaps, to uh, deter China doing something silly in Taiwan, for example. I mean, those, those holdings could be seized. Mm -hmm. Well, Joseph Borrell has been praising the EU's cooperation with the Biden administration, but he asked, and I quote again, what would have happened if instead of Joe Biden, it would have been Trump or someone like him in the White House? What would have been the answer of the US to the war in Ukraine? What would have been our answer in a different situation? 
In your view, if the US was not leading, what would be the response of EU and its member states to the war uh, in Ukraine? Would European leaders have pushed Ukraine into early concessions? It's a, a very interesting question. It's obviously difficult to speculate as to what the US response would have been had Trump or a Trump-like president been in the White House. Um, given Trump's unpredictability on certain things, we, we don't know how the dynamic of the situation may have gone. I, like many others, are glad that it's Biden in the White House um, and have been glad to see the, uh, the US taking the approach it has. There are also many Republicans and many in the Republican um, foreign policy establishment who would have taken a similar approach, I think, and who see the, the value of that. So just putting aside the case of what, what that response would have been, but assuming for a second it would, they would have taken more of a back seat, what would European leaders have done? Um, I think that some European leaders would have been tempted to push Ukraine into early concessions um, to keep things as business as usual for themselves and their countries with, with Russia. While talking a good game about upholding democratic values, they would, may well have betrayed them, or at least they would have tried to, because I don't think Ukraine would have acquiesced to this. They wouldn't have agreed to do that. They wouldn't have backed down. I don't think the countries in North, Central, Eastern Europe would have backed down either. And so what I think would have happened is that there would have been a huge rift in the European Union. And what I think we're seeing anyway is a lot of the more neo-idealist countries actually trying to, to understand their alliances and their institutional memberships in terms of the value they bring rather than seeing them as a value in themselves. And so that means saying, does the EU actually deliver for what we need? Is the EU something we can continue to, to work with in the long term? They, they won't say this in public. I'm quite sure of that because that would cause a huge diplomatic rift. But behind the scenes, I think there's a reevaluation happening saying, what, what is this for? If the EU can't face the future, if the EU and its larger member states do not have a compelling vision for our future that would, for example, have included supporting Ukraine, would, for example, have include supporting us if we were attacked in the case of the Baltic states, uh, then and it, it's, no, it's no certainty that they wouldn't be supported, but at the same time, the question, I think, has started to, um, to arise. Then this says to, to the Europeans, we need a vision for the future here. We need something that can be bought into by all Europeans, and certainly that's not coming from Paris at the moment. There's no vision in Berlin uh, for the future. They're too busy sorting out internal business. There is a vision in Central Eastern Europe, but do others buy into it? No, not everyone in the West buys into that. So it does raise the question of actually what a real strategic compass, directional mm -hmm. vision yes. might look like. François Heisberg recently highlighted that um, France has provided only 2% of external military support to Ukraine since the start of the war. <coughs> Italy, 3%. Germany, 9%. Poland, 22%. Well, what prevents France and Germany and Italy, for that matter, from doing more? Is this about military incapacity of these countries or rather an issue of lack of political will? I recently heard a high-level uh, EU official say that France, Germany and Italy were not providing more weapons to Ukraine because of what it would mean in terms of confrontation with Russia. Is this approach justified in your view? No, the approach is not justified. Um, is it based partly on capacity constraints? Partly, uh, but it, that only excuses part of it, I think. Um, the fear of, of escalation 
is certainly there, but this, it raises a very interesting question because fear, fear is one thing, how you deal with it is another. And this, this type of explanation from German media, for example, who are very fond of, of talking about these threats of escalation, rather assumes that other countries don't have this fear, rather assumes that Czechs don't fear nuclear war. It's nonsense, of course they do, mm. but they realize that actually the, the vanishing possibility of escalation up to that kind of conflict is not a good reason to give in to the certainty of more dead Ukrainians and more Russian brutality and the certainty of the signal that would send about rewarding aggression and rewarding nuclear blackmail. So I think there's a very, very important lesson to be learned Absolutely. there. The yeah. other part of this, um, we know that, for example, the Italian military doesn't have a large um, supply of main battle tanks. It was not something they chose to, to invest in. They have a very capable navy that does a very good job for NATO in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. and it's certainly something that Russia thinks about a lot. Um, in Germany, there is available kit that could be sent, but there's a lack of willingness to do it. Uh, I'm not necessarily talking about direct from Bundeswehr stocks, uh, because the Bundeswehr is also in a parlous state and has been underinvested in for years. But there is other material that is ready to, to be sent um, that hasn't been. And it's interesting that a lot of the, the reasons that are given for not sending support, uh, military support in Germany evaporate into excuses uh, merely weeks later. We've seen this in a consistent pattern since April um, and since, since March, Feb February, in fact, that something will be said, no, this is impossible. And then only weeks later, it becomes possible. Uh, and this, this creates a, a strange dynamic where Germany seems to be moving at the speed of shame from, from outside. Um, and that gives an impression that their politicians are not in control of the process, which will have some implications for the so-called Zeitenwender, for sure. Some people suggest that Ukraine should start negotiating with Russia soon, as the, uh, as the rest of Europe is having to pay a growing price for the war in terms of assistance to Ukraine, incla increased inflation and energy costs. And more importantly, every day of the war brings enormous human suffering. Um, on the other hand, um, a ceasefire with Russia could potentially give Russia an opportunity to recover and um, launch a new offensive, potentially costing Europe much more in the longer term. There is also the issue, obviously, of Russia's war crimes and accountability for them. What would be your position? Would Europe, including Ukraine, actually be better off if Ukraine and Russia reached a ceasefire agreement in the coming months? Well, first and foremost, that's a decision for Ukraine, Ukrainians to make. Um, I don't think they should be pressured from, from outside, uh, but I also don't see any indication that they are moving towards negotiations at this time. So I think it's fair to, uh, fair to talk on that, that basis. Um, and it's interesting to note that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor in the US, not a noted Russia hawk, and in fact one of the more restraint-oriented members of the Biden security team, even said recently that Russia is not to be trusted as a negotiation partner. It's not a good faith partner, mm -hmm. uh, he said. They're not a credible negotiating partner, therefore. And Sullivan also said that Ukraine should have every opportunity to reclaim its territory, which is its, its right. Mm. And much more importantly, although the two, the two come together, to free its people from the oppressive and barbarous yoke of Russian rule. And that's something important that a lot of people pushing for negotiations don't seem to understand, that simply abandoning people who are in the occupied territory of Russia to their fate, while it might look like 
peace in terms of a war having stopped. Absolutely. Does it free them from human rights abuses? Does it actually give them any kind of security, any future possibility of well-being? Does it actually, in fact, put them in massive danger of reprisals against people who stood uh, as, as resistant to the occupation? Yes, it does. And we see story after story of uh, Russian brutality in this regard. So I don't think we should be giving Ukrainians up for that, especially if you, the Ukrainian government doesn't want to. Instead, we need to be giving Ukraine what it needs to actually kick Russia out of its territory as fast and at as mm. low cost as possible. You know, peace through super, superior firepower, if you, if you like. Um, in the longer term, though, there's, there's a question about what would bring real stable security, and this comes to your point about giving Russia a chance to rearm and regroup. Mm -hmm. I see actually the only real security providing step in the region as Ukrainian NATO membership. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see an alternative that is a credible security guarantee for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We see what informal security guarantees, non-treaty, non-alliance security guarantees mean. And opponents of this often talk about Ukraine becoming the, the Israel of the region. And I, I don't see how that really is going to happen. But of course, the key thing with Israel is that it has nuclear weapons. And the question is to these people who, who don't want Ukraine to join NATO, do they want Ukraine to, to develop nuclear weapons? And I think what we can see in terms, and this goes back to your point about cost from the beginning, um, one of the costs of rewarding Russian aggression, of letting it go unpunished, of making it seem that there's some reason to do this, would likely be growing nuclear proliferation, for one thing, and it would be growing global insecurity, which will cost Europeans massively more in the longer run, um, because it will damage democratic ordering, it will damage liberal ordering, it will make the world unsafe for democracy. And that's the bigger cost in the long run that makes these smaller costs now, which are real in people's lives, there's no, no doubt about that, but they are minute compared to the longer term cost that we would pay from failing to properly deter Russian aggression. Do you think that this war made it more plausible that Ukraine would, will actually join NATO? Yes, I do. Um, in the long run, because as I say, I think it's the only credible way of guaranteeing security in the region and of credibly deterring Russia. And I think it's also going to be something that may be pushed for by some of the states I mentioned before, um, the Central East European states, the, the Nordics and Baltics. They've been extremely committed to NATO, and we can also see that uh, they're extremely committed to Ukraine. What we've also seen very quickly mm -hmm. is that Poland's investment in its defense, for example, makes it much more likely to be the candidate of the large capable ground force at the heart of NATO than, for example, Germany, which was often imagined as the, uh, the state that would do that. That buys credibility in decision making too. You have been praising a new generation of EU leaders who lived their formative years in the hopeful 1990s, their worldview not being grim and skeptical, and they believe that EU can be more powerful if it actively stands up for its values. This is also linked to the point that this war is not um, only about Ukraine, but it's about the freedom and future of all Europeans. Is value-based um, politics really a growing trend in Europe? Or are we just talking about a few exceptional individuals? Mm. It, it's a great question. And yes, I have written on this um, because I think there really is something in it. Um, we, those of us who grew up in the 1990s know how a hopeful a time it was when you did realize that actually progress could be made in the world um, as well as in your, your own societies. It wasn't perfect, of course, we shouldn't kid ourselves about that, but there was definitely a feeling of hope and progress there, which 
was perhaps betrayed by 9-11, by the, the war on terror and the, the squandered legacy of the, the end of the Cold War that came after it, and also the, uh, the global financial crisis um, and the growing realization that neoliberal globalization would not generate overall hope and progress. It would leave us stuck in, a, in an endless present. But it's been particularly interesting to see in response to, um, to Russia's renewed, renewed aggression against Ukraine, indeed a generation of leaders. So thinking about people like Kaya Kalas, Zana Marin, um, Jan Lipavsky in the Czech Republic, the, the foreign minister, uh, Gabrielis Landsberg is in, um, mm -hmm. uh, in, in Lithuania, the foreign minister there as well, all of whom who did have part of their formative years at that time engaged in what is a strongly value-based foreign policy at the moment, strongly value-based uh, approach to geopolitics that combines a really tough defense of democracy by military means if necessary to stand up for values where they are threatened um, with that directional future-looking view of saying actually freedom and human rights, fundamental freedoms and human rights are essential to future progress. We also see it coming together with talk of rebalancing um, the economic model in certain countries. So Danusha Nerudova, who's a Czech presidential candidate, has talked of the need to move towards a stakeholder capitalism that involves more people in the benefits of our, of our economies. And we've seen a stronger role for the state through the COVID pandemic and also in response to, to Ukraine. It's states who are calling the shots, states who seem as the line between life and death, but also perhaps as opening the road to the future. So I think it's it's not everywhere yet, but it's not limited to those politicians either. Mm. If you look at NAFO, the North Atlantic Fellows Organization, and what NAFO are doing, this is somehow the return of a repressed dignity, the return of repressed courage, the idea that there is a silent majority out there who are decent people, who want actually a values-based life and want to stand up for it for others, to want to stand up to wrong where they see it happening, and are sick of their governments doing it with one hand tied behind their back. It's in every person who is making sacrifices on their energy bills to help support Ukraine this winter. It's, it's really, I think, something that's more broad out there and needs to be channeled and can be channeled mm -hmm. rather than letting us get stuck in the, the endless present of, of neoliberalism or actually the sort of retrograde, supposedly realist, but actually rather unrealistic views of power held in certain other capitals. Well, here I would ask you last question, perhaps, because uh, when when a word idealism is heard, many look down at it because they think it's not realistic. Now, on the other hand, I think realists got this war very wrong. Um, what would be your comment on that? Sure. I, this is particularly why I use the term neo-idealism, actually, because it's always been used as a slur. It's been used to uh, delegitimate. Uh, but that's because we never really gave it a chance. Um, the power of values conceived as ideals to strive for are things that can change, change the world, and in fact slowly have done over, over the years. But in international relations terms, it is always looked down on uh, by so-called realists. And this, this was done very deliberately uh, by E.H. Carr towards the interwar realists, for example. Um, he painted them as these sort of muddle-headed, wishy-washy utopians. None of the politicians I mentioned before could be accused of that way. These are hard-nosed, hard-edged defenders of freedoms, rights, and values, uh, but who nonetheless see the value of ideals as inspiring, um, inspiring societies. And actually, even E.H. Carr realized this too. Uh, his inheritors don't seem to understand this, but all the way through his uh, main work, The 20 Years Crisis, his most important work, he talks also about the need for ideals. Um, and even if he himself appeased Hitler, was a Marxist, um, or was in favor of appeasing Hitler, uh, he did see the value of ideals, but he preached realism. And it seems as though the so-called realists of today have forgotten 
that balance that mm. needs to needs to be there. I would say, in fact, what passes for realism in international relations thinking is highly unrealistic, as it only takes account, really, of great powers. Um, it overlooks the agency, the interests, the values of smaller states, and it doesn't see much beyond power. It's a miserable world that brings itself into being, and that's exactly what neo-idealism resists. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for highlighting the value of ideals. And thank you all for watching. We will come back with further Europe chats soon. Stay tuned. This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein. Thank you.